0: If you're visiting with us, we especially welcome you. We are in a uh, two- and a three-fourth-year study, that is hard to believe, uh, from January 1st of 2017 uh, till now. And guys, I just counted it up on my phone, and if I'm correct in this, we have 10 sermons left in the book of Mark. So you can plan the party for the last Sunday in October, hopefully. Uh, I know. No, I didn't hear whoever did that, and I will just not pretend I heard that at all. And we will let that be, but uh, yes, that was probably our secretary, Judy. Uh, uh, y- <laughs> Craig, I think you're getting me in trouble more than I know, so thank you, brother. Guys, in all seriousness, we are, actually, there's, there's uh, about nine sermons left, and on the, the final sermon of the study of Mark, we're going we're gonna to summarize it all in a sermon, and that's going to be possible. We're going to bring it full bore. But uh, in all seriousness, as you turn there, I hope you have learned, and one of the goals for this has been to teach us, hasn't it? the the value of every word of the Word of God, that every word is dripping with meaning, and and that's what we want to do. Uh, Just like you hope your husband or your wife or your kids hang on every word you say all the time and listen to everything you say, So too, we pray that this going verse by verse or exegetically, expositionally going through has been a help to you. Well, today, uh, play on words. The title of today's sermon is called Sinners in the Hands of a Sovereign God. Sinners in the Hands of a Sovereign God, not uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, but another one. But it reminds me of a story. This lady unfortunately passed away this week, but uh, many of you may have seen this. I don't think it made the nightly news But you may remember her as Rosie Ruiz, who in 1980 at the Boston Marathon barely broke a sweat, but came across the finish line first in the ladies' division. And when asked the next day, how do you feel running 26 miles, she said, I've never felt better in my life. And they found video of her cutting the course, taking the subway to mile 25.5, running a half a mile, and then a little bit more, and winning the Boston Marathon. And her course was revoked. She was betraying the trust. Or you remember this guy. He's kind of been out of the limelight for a bit. His name is Lance Armstrong. He said many times over, I've said it before. I've never doped. I've never doped. I've never doped. And as many times as he said it, he was stripped of all of his uh, Tour de France titles. You remember this, don't you? been a few years back. In 2013, he admitted to having cheated after having cancer all those years. Still an amazing feat, but drug-fueled as it was. You know, nothing in life is more tragic than being betrayed, right? As a sports fan, being betrayed in this way. But even more so, when someone close to you turns against you, unknown to you, and brings it up to you. In fact, one thing, that's what the enemy does to open the door, But something different is when a person close to you that says they trust you blindsides you with such a move. It's one thing to be attacked from the front. It's another when they shake your hand with one hand and then turn their back another and stab you in the back. Is that not what happened uh, to Augustus Caesar when he said, Brutus, uh, you too, Brutus, if you remember that historical story. And they serve alongside you and they give you a visual. They're standing with you, but behind their back, they're really just planning your demise. And sometimes this happens in marriage, sadly, doesn't it? Where your spouse commits to you until death do us part, but really they're looking at things or they're doing things uh, behind the scenes that are breaking the confidence of that marriage. Or sometimes in a business, a partner that you've worked with for years and you've shared tears and sweat with and equity with steals from you and you're left with nothing to show for it. Sometimes even in ministry this happens where someone that has walked alongside you in the church or has professed faithfulness has betrayed you and does harm to drive you out. In each of these cases, from the sports to the intimate, you've been made subject of a loathsome betrayal. Revelation, in a very stark verse, reminds us that at the end of days, and it says, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexual immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. God reminds us in the Word at the very end even that that lying, that cheating, that betraying is one of the worst things that one could do. And this is happening, isn't it, in this famous passage of Jesus. He's being betrayed by one of His 12 disciples. It's an inside job. It's an inside bank job, so to speak, and it's one thing for the Pharisees and the scribes to get out in front of him and say, hey, I hate you, Jesus, but it's another for Judas to come behind and literally almost stab him in the back. Judas sold his soul to the devil for 30 pieces of silver. Not just a mistaken person, he was a conniving deceiver. He lived with Jesus and others and acted like he was one of them. He wanted to be one of them because he liked being around the influence and the pomp and the circumstance. But it raises the question, doesn't it? How does God use evil in this life of ours? I mean, the problem of evil is why is there not more evil? Have you ever thought about that? Why is there not more evil in this world, even though there's so much already? And how does God use betrayal and evil in His plan for His purposes? And what does this mean for us? Well, today's big idea, and and Taylor, you're going to have this drilled in your head because we're going to drill this in your head. I'm picking on Taylor today. It's his first day as an intern, so we have to... But the big idea today, the the summary of the sermon is simply this, is that in the betrayal of Christ, God made evil commit suicide by doing its worst evil. Say again? (laughs) Evil thought it had the upper hand, but really, in thinking it had the upper hand, it actually was being Betrayed by itself because Christ himself always has the upper hand because he is sovereign. Even when sinners think they are doing what seems to be best against the message of Christianity, the message goes forward like wildfire. That's why I'm excited, and I use this term normally. We are a normative-sized church. Tower View is a normal-sized Baptist church. We're not too big. We're not too small. We're right smack dab in the middle of what most churches are our size. And you know what? I love that because that means that gives room for God to move because it's not our money that pushes us. It's not our buildings that push us. It is faithful people like you who have been called here to share the gospel that even when the tide culturally turns against us, the power of the gospel working through the Spirit is greater than anything that can come at us. And we're going to see that today. Three ways God uses sinners today. And yes, Taylor, you got to get used to this too. I'm on like a, I don't, I'm on an alliteration kick, man, so you just got to run with this. Uh, Drew will tell you, it's not good preaching, but it works for, for outlines, so a little preacher tip. But God uses sinners three ways this morning. He uses sinners to accomplish His purpose, accomplish His plans, and to assess His people. God uses sinners. Are you a sinner today? Yes, you are. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God uses wicked, evil people for his purposes. And sometimes he calls them his servants. say, what? We're going to get there today. Because this is a very familiar passage, but I want you to remember Christ is in charge. These people have plans. They have money. They have everything down. But Christ is sovereignly in charge of everything. Keep that in mind. Friends, when you look across the landscape of all this world, remember God is in charge. And so, too, at his death, he is in charge. When your world sounds like Psalm 88, like Brother Nelson read, it sounds crazy. Weren't you, when you heard that psalm, weren't you waiting for the upkeep of my soul will rejoice in you? And, Lord, you're so good. The psalmist let the evil be the evil. But at the end of the day, he knew that God is still in control this morning. And if you'll stand with us in honor of God's Word to read, I want you to see how God uses sinners to accomplish His purposes, how He turns the evil they do on its head for His great plan and His great glory. I'm going to read starting verse 43 out of the ESV. Uh, that is page 852 in the Blue Bible. If you don't have one, if you need one, please, as always, feel free to take that home, a gift from us to you. And it says, They led Jesus or excuse me, immediately while he was still speaking, verse 43, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Verse 45, And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. That's Jesus, of course. And they laid hands on Jesus, and they seized him. But verse 47, one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest's ear, and he cut it off. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I've been with you in the temple teaching, and yet you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left and fled. And verse 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Yes, he ran away naked. So let that sit in. And I want to remind you this morning that this scene is utter chaos. Everything has been shattered for these disciples. Everything has been known by Christ. They have been awoken, and he's still speaking. And you need to remember this scene is utter chaos for everything that happens, but God is in control. Let's pray as we go before our Lord this morning. Father, as we come to tackle perhaps one of the biggest topics out there that has been for many years, the problem of evil in the world. Father, we're reminded that you, as James says, you are not the one who tempts, Father, for you are, uh, sin comes from us, it comes out of our evil desires. But Father, we're also reminded too that you are a sovereign God and that you have given us choice, but in that choice we have chosen to rebel. But at the same time, you remain undisturbed in your plans. But yet at the same time, Lord, you use this evil, uh, Father, to your greater good in our lives. Father, thank you. The ultimate example, of course, is your son, Jesus, who bore the wrath, who was buried and rose again. We love him so much, Father, all by grace through faith in Christ. We thank you for this. Give us wisdom today in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Well, as we come this morning, I just, uh, just want to remind you of this, that Jesus last week woke up those sleepy disciples, and they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. I always get that out a little quick. The hour is midnight. The time has come, and the agent now is Judas Iscariot, one of the Lord's own. And I want you to see, first off, that God uses sinners to accomplish His purposes. God uses sinners to accomplish His purposes, and Amy will put that first point up. Immediately, it says, immediately, remember, that's Mark's favorite word. You should know that by now. Immediately, Mark says that while he was still speaking, I hate when people interrupt each other, don't you? But we all do it, right? One lesson we're learning at home is when our brother or sister's talking, we be quiet and we listen to them and we do those things. As Jesus was still talking, what was he speaking about? Well, he was probably speaking about the things still to come, but while he was still speaking, Judas came. Here he comes, walking along. And all this is playing out according to God's plan. And remember, Judas had snuck out earlier from the upper room, the Last Supper, with the darkness of his soul, he'd gone to the priest, he'd he'd, he'd sold out Jesus, they offered 30 coins, he said, great, I'll take your best offer, and he would be the one to ID Jesus in the middle of the night. Remember, there's no light, probably, if any, or if there is, there's very little. And so you notice how Mark refers to him. He says he's one of the 12. It shows how bad this was, that he, we would feel this, this string, this deed was an inside job. And Judas didn't know that he knew where he was going to be found, or he thought Jesus didn't know where he was going, but Judas knew all along where he was going. Evil starts very far off, friends, from when it actually happens. Judas had probably been planning this for many, many months, many years perhaps, waiting for his time to cash in on the big one. You know, Dog the Bounty Hunter and all those guys who go around into Mexico and try and find these people out, but uh, you know, breaking their bail bonds and all this stuff. They wait for that big catch, that big payday. Well, this was it. And he's about to go to a place that he will have no return. Let me just say this very clearly. John 6 makes very clear that Judas was a son of perdition, to use the King James Version. He was a son of the devil. John 13 tells us that Satan literally jumped into... Uh, took possession of Judas himself. So the question of whether Judas was in heaven is an easy one for us. He was not. He was always the fall guy. Judas chose in his own volition to rebel against Jesus Christ and in doing so, cast himself away from Jesus Christ forever. Was that a surprise to God? Folks, not at all. He knew this would happen. Just as God knows those who will come to Christ and he knows those who will. Well, Darren, now you're getting all Calvinistic on us. No, I'm not. I'm just trying to be biblical with you that God is sovereign. He knows all things. And when he says he's one of the 12, he doesn't mean he's one of the 12 that he's saved. What he's saying is is that Judas himself should have known better, but he made a choice that was not good. He sinned against the Most High. You notice there a crowd came, and a crowd came with him. Friends, I'm going to be honest. I looked this up several places. This is probably an army. This is probably at least a couple hundred people coming to arrest Jesus. Can you imagine that today? The person who's shopless at Quick Trip gets an army of 200 around them just to go arrest them. And they were sent from the chief priest. I mean, how evil could this be? The men that should have known better were the ones that said okay to this. And the need for secrecy is emphasized because the people love Jesus at this moment, and you would have heard them coming. You would have heard the clink, 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 clink. You would have heard it coming. You could have felt it perhaps, the shaking of the boots in the ground, Roman soldiers, temple guards. But I want to remind you that at the end of time, God will use evil to do the opposite of what it intended. Friends, you need to know that. For every story of every person who is beaten, who is abused, who is taken advantage of, for every story of every child who is neglected, for every story of every person who's burned the wrong way or betrayed, God will somehow, in His plan, use it for the better good. And I hope that's comfort for you today. Genesis 50, 20, one of my favorite verses. You remember that story, don't you? Joseph stood before his brothers. You remember the story? Joseph was sold into slavery, and his brothers uh, didn't realize that he had rose to second in command over Egypt. And, and Father Jacob dies, and they stand before Joseph, the lead, second in command of Egypt, and they say, what are you going to do to us? And Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, for the saving of many lives. God flipped it on its head. And Christian, keep telling the story which others meant evil for you and realize that God meant it for good. Romans eight twenty eight. for God works all things out for those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. And that is the good He shows. But it shows us also how the unconverted act, we should not be surprised that non-Christians do non-Christian things. Judas is going to do what Judas does. Notice verses 44 and 45. Not only did someone have to deceive Christ, but now someone had to deliver Christ. Look at this, how this purpose is accomplished. Notice verse 44, and Mark tells us this. He says, now the betrayer. He's not just one of the 12 now. Mark says, you're the betrayer. The betrayer had given them a sign. He's not known by his name, but by his deed. And the sign was to tell who Jesus was. Now, as I'm reading through this, you're thinking, that's pretty obvious, is I mean, Jesus is Jesus, right? He looks like Jesus. They've seen him publicly. How do they not know who he is? Guys, it's dark outside. So if you've ever been in caves before, you know you can't see in the front of your hand. So give them some grace here in the sense that he wanted to make sure this was right. And he lands a big kiss on him, a big, a big smooch on Jesus, because that's what you did in those days. That was a cultural thing. And in verse 45, it goes on to say that, and and when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And that word kiss there is a fervent affection. Judas is playing the part. He's he's kissing him so much that it's almost embarrassing. Isn't that sad? Husbands, that's what you're supposed to do to your wives after you haven't seen them for a long time. You kiss them until they're red in the face and they're embarrassed, right? But this was a kiss of death. This was a kiss of evil it means it's the same word used in the prodigal son in Luke 15 where he threw his arms around his son and he smothered his son in kisses. So often we see it portrayed in these movies where Judas walks up and he does one of those like kind of awkward holy Christian kiss thing where they're like, no, he's like, that's what he's doing. And he gave them enough time to clearly identify who Jesus was. Judas was being used by the devil so much that every other text gets in line with his hypocrisy. Look, friends, you can come to church, you can do all sorts of things, you can play the part, but it doesn't mean you know Jesus Christ. You can be just a facade, just a mask, you can go back to the lifestyle, you can put a mask again the next week, but Judas was a hypocrite. He wore a mask, he played the part, and Romans 12.9 reminds us that we should let love be without hypocrisy. Our love should be without any hidden motive. We shouldn't love people in the church or, or, or see what they could get out of it for us. We don't scratch their back. We don't go do quid pro quo, to use the legal term. We should reach out genuinely to everyone and let that be what it is. But friends, and Amy will put this up, when God seems most absent from the events of our times, He's in fact most present. And He is at a level we cannot imagine. Hab- Hab- Habakkuk five. Hab- Habakkuk You guys say these things up here. It's tough sometimes to get these words out. But he said, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe even if I told you. Even in the false, fierce kissing of Jesus, God was accomplishing his purposes right there, right then. Every being, everything, all events of histories are God. He is in the heavens and He does what He pleases. Whatever happens in the world is the one thing that God is in control of. And we praise God forever for He is the God of gods. Daniel 2.21 says, Praise the name of God forever and ever for He has all wisdom and all power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and He sets up kings. Daniel 2.21 and 22. Despite the evil... Despite the evil, God was using sinners to accomplish His purpose. Well, Darren, what about World War II? What about Hitler? What about the Holocaust? What about the Crusades? What about Pol Pot? What about uh, fill in the blank massacre here, massacre there, mass shooting in Dayton, mass shooting in you know in El Paso a couple weeks back? How do what do we do with those guys? Those are big questions. Let me first tell you this: God is in complete control, and sinners made complete decisions on their own volition on their own decision. There are things that even in this world as people we just have to look up and say, "Lord, I don't know, but I know that you know, and that's enough for me." And I rest there. You pray for victims, you pray for families, you pray for the gospel to be clear, you pray for churches to reach out, and you pray that people come to know Jesus, and you leave it there. Friends, there this has been an issue of struggle for 2000 years in the church. How can there be a good God but evil things happen? Well, God is still good even if evil things happen, but guys, we're never going to cross those dots. If you've lost someone in your life and you say, that's not fair, God, how could that happen? Friend, be very careful. Is it okay to be angry at God at times? I'm looking at Pastor Nelson. Master Nelson and I have this talk all the time. The psalmists get pretty angry at God. Go read the psalms. But at the end of those psalms, and Nelson will remind you of this several times, they lift back up and say, you know what? God, I don't get it, but you get it, and that's enough for me. If you have tragedy in your life, remember that God is in control. And he's with you, even at the most fact of the most present level you cannot even imagine. Let's go to number two. God not only uses sinners to accomplish his plans, he uses them to achieve the plans. Those sound similar, but they're a little bit different. Let's unpack that. Look at verse 46 as we do. So Jesus is going to be wrongfully arrested here in verse 46 by the soldiers. And it says, and they laid hands on him and seized him. They laid hands on him and seized him. Can you imagine what this would have been like? Jesus has been touched before, and people got healed. Jesus had been touched before, and things changed. People had done things to him before. But notice this. There's no Miranda rights. You have the right to remain silent. There's no lawyer card. There's no, I slept at a Holiday Inn last night. There's none of that stuff. It's an injustice. It's no charges are read. He's like an animal, and he's been trapped. But I want you to hear the parallel account in John 18. I'll just read it for you. John 18, starting in verse 4. It says, Jesus, knowing this would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he, egoe me. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. What an awesome sight. Jesus has hundreds armed to the teeth for war, and He steps out and simply says, I am He, and they step back. Well, what were they afraid of? Surely not Jesus. They weren't afraid of Jesus. They're seizing Him. They're afraid of Him because He named the name of God. He's showing His power. Imagine all the metal and what that sounds like when all the metal clanks back. Imagine all the people at the mention of His name become parallel and helpless, but it begs the question, who is in charge? God is in charge. Christian, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church because God is in charge. So they asked him, John 18, 7, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men, referring to the disciples, go. And Luke 22 records this. Jesus addressed Judas, but Jesus has said to him, Judas, why do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? I want to remind you that even in the darkest hour, God is still in control. This world can go to hell in a handbasket, but God is in control. Friends, do not let the news dictate your faith. We are entering, I'm going to remind you again, you're going to hear me say this so much, we are entering another political season. Uh, turn off your TV, turn off your radio, go read your Bible, all right? I'm, I'm kind of being tongue-in-cheek, but I'm being serious too. You're going to hear that if we get this politician in the office, we get this person in here, this person in here, this person in here, Then America is going to be back to the greatest place it ever was. Friends, there is no nation that has never been great outside of those who have sought God. And let me tell you, America is as far away from God as some of the most pagan nations before. We're aborting babies left and right. We define marriage a way God never defined it. We go ways that God never said to go, and yet we want God to bless us. Friends, we trust not in chariots or horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And He's able. I'm not telling you not to vote. I'm not telling you who to vote for. But I'm telling you to remember. You're entering a season where you're going to get start to get boiling angry, some of you, because your faith is going to be more in a person than it is in the Lord. Vote. Do it wisely. Do it honorably. But remember, even when things like this go down, He is God. And nothing Nothing within His providence is without use. God is sovereign over injustice. He uses it, but He Himself is unjust. Wrong within His own domain does not make Him wrong. He is still God. He's still on His throne. And what great news that is, guys. But notice verse 47. You notice who this is. Verse 47, that hothead, Peter, right? Did you see this? Verse 47, Peter brings out his sword. Because what do you do when you are provoked? Many of y'all, you know... uh, Many all I, I, well, some of y'all have histories where you've told me before that when you got punched, you punched back before you knew Jesus Christ, right? Uh, your brother pushed you and you pushed back and mom, mom saved the day and your hide too, but that's another question. He pulls out a sword. Peter is shaking in his boots. How dare you take my Savior? Remember, Peter just told him, I will never deny you. I will go to die with you, Jesus. He told us that a few weeks ago, didn't he? And he is so unsure of himself now, he pulls out probably a little waistband on his side. He pulls out a little sword, and he cuts off the ear of the servant's high priest. We know his name from other accounts. His name is Malchus. And the other accounts say that Jesus reached down. I'm not going to get in the detail of what that looked like, but he reached down and goes something like this and puts it back on. Even when injustice is happening to him, our Savior is kind. Isn't that great? Friend, I pray that we can have that in our church, that even when things get tense, whatever they get tense for, if they ever get tense for something, that we can have the patience of our Savior. Do we have that patience with sinners in our lives, people who don't know Jesus or do we just react to them? How dare you do that, you non-Christian? How dare you act like a non-Christian? Friend, they're going to let non-Christians out and non-Christians, but you pray they become a Christian, amen? When this world does things, do not be surprised, but praise God for His compassion. He takes it out. He literally takes it out, and the other accounts tells us that He puts it back in. And so that ear, that very small part of the ear, Luke 22, 50 says He, he, he brings it back, but I want to tell you that the flesh is always going to overreact. Your flesh is always going to overreact. It's going to leave you in misery and destruction. You may have good intentions, but flesh has a far more damage than you ever know. I mean, can, I mean, would a believer ever do this? Surely Christians never fly off the handle. Surely Christians never get upset with other people, their boss, their kids, their spouse, other church members. Surely that would never happen. I mean, do we spawn this, respond like this? Have you ever done this before? Maybe you've never cut someone's ear off. I hope not. But have you responded this way? Because insecurity breeds fear, and Peter was fearful. Do you act this way when someone takes the TV remote from you or steals the Internet so you can't watch your favorite show? I mean, seriously. Or when someone cuts you off in traffic? Are you trying to fix a matter by taking it in your own hands? I mean, ministries, when someone acts when led by the flesh, this is exactly what it looks like, guys. And Peter was wrong, but still God used that to show His compassion in accomplishing and achieving His purposes. But notice verse 40, we go down just a little bit out. Verse 48, you see more of the sovereignty of God here. Jesus asked them a very pointed question, does He not? He says in verse 48, and He goes on to say, And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against Me? like a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. So let the scriptures be fulfilled. Have you come out? He's telling them, he's, you guys are the initiators of this. What have I done? Every day I've been with you. You're treating me like a highway robber. I mean, these are fair questions, aren't they? Uh, just this past week, uh, I saw online that a, a man who was accused of double murder back in the 90s was released from prison. Do you see this on the news in the last few days? I mean, there are people, that doesn't mean everyone who's guilty or, or charged with guilt is innocent, but there are occasions where we simply mess it up. And look at us, we got DNA, we got CSI, we got all this cool stuff, and yet we still can't get it right. How much more do these people just simply want Jesus out of the way because of their own power? Friends, I want to remind you, and Amy will throw this up, Jesus is not only the Savior of the world, but He's also the sovereign King and righteous judge. It's comfort for the same, but it's terror for the sinner. And when He says, let all the Scripture be fulfilled, He's reminding us and reminding the disciples, guys, this has been the plan all along. Take comfort in that fact. I'm not surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. This evil that's come upon me, guess what? I'm still in control, and they will stand before me someday. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 26, 53, in the same account of Matthew, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send more than ten legions of angels? But how much more should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? We must be Christians surrendered and submitted as much as our Savior was in this life. There is going to be sorrow. There is going to be tough times. But we must humbly accept what the Lord brings. Let me say it again. We've said it the last couple weeks. God is going to give you more than you can handle, always. It's going to be more with your husband. It's going to be more with your wife. It's going to be more with your kids, your job, your relations, your finances. He's always going to give you more than you can handle, but His grace is sufficient for you just as it was for Christ and His humanity, even though He was fully God and yet his purpose was being achieved. Don't you love Jesus here? He doesn't say, man, I read the latest newspaper, and guess what? This was going to happen. It predicted it. No, he said, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Guys, how do we know that Jesus is coming back? Because the scriptures say so. That's our hope. That's our grace. Let's go to the final point. God uses his sinners to accomplish his purposes, achieve his plans, and finally, and I left this at the very end, and Yes, there's a guy who ran away naked, okay? Can we get that out there? Some of y'all are going to laugh when I read it again anyway. So there's a guy who ran away naked. It, it does seem like an odd point, doesn't it? It is, and we'll get to that. But I want you to see what this is. This is an assessment of his people, we'll end with this, how God uses sinners to assess or examine or do a temperature check in modern terms with his people. Look back at verse 50. And after this, it says, A young man followed him. And they, well, they all left and fled. All the disciples fled away. But there was a young man, verse 51, who followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. Who's the they? The, the crowd or the, 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 the mob. And, but they left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is one of those things in the Bible, if you're talking to a skeptic, you're like, yeah, you know, this is there. What, why is this in here? Well, first, I want you to see that Jesus told them in the upper room, verse 27, if you want to flip back there, Mark 14, 27, he told them that you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's already told them this. This is going to happen. So this is fulfilling, this little section here is fulfilling a, a promise, a prophecy what Jesus said. They should have clung to him, but they fled from him. Peter was going to deny Christ three times. John would follow him all the way to Calvary, but he would cower at times as well. James Montgomery Boyce, I think, said it best. He said, at this moment, Jesus is forsaken by all so that all who believe in him will never be forsaken. Let me read that again. Jesus is forsaken by all so that all who believe in him will never be forsaken. Friends, and Amy will put this up, but sometimes God uses unsaved people to cleanse those who are truly Christian. That's what this whole little episode is about. Not only did the disciples flee, but those on the outer ring, but still close to Christ, fled as well. God will use scandals in the church to cleanse His church. Did you know that? God will use reports by the Houston Chronicle, and you can look all this up in recent days in our own convention to cleanse churches and get them to write the path about what who to whom they should be hiring and what practices they should have. God can use outside media to call attention and hypocrisy out within the church. Do you ever know that? Isn't that crazy? I mean, why would that work? I mean, think about this. Jerusalem, do you remember Jerusalem falling for the first time? God warned them over and over and over again, turn to me or your walls will fall. Turn to me or the temple will go down. And God calls Cyrus, a wicked evil king, his servant, Isaiah 44 and 45. So God can use unsaved people to get us people to walk the right way. I mean, as a Christian, have you not ever had a chance when you're walking around and you're living out your faith, a non-Christian says something that really convicts you or arrests your attention because you know what they say is true and what you're doing is not true? Maybe that's never happened to you before. It's happened to me before. They didn't say it to me directly, but what they said really made me think, yep, yep, shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have said that. Sometimes God uses unsafe people to do that. Sometimes God raises up church leaders over 1,500 years to take the church into what might be called the Dark Ages so that we are more man-centered than God-centered. And then He raises up people to reform that church some 502 years ago in 1515, 1517. Friends, the point is, these disciples are scared, and even in their scaredness, God was using these sinners, this crowd, this mob, to take His people and say, are you really for me, or are you really not? Is it really about the lip service being around the miracles, or is it really about denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following me? And can I tell you, He's doing that in our culture as well. Churches are losing members by the droves. There was a, a letter that was circulated, it's public on Facebook, that was sent out to a member who had engaged openly in a marriage that is sinful, uh, person, sex, same-sex marriage. Uh, the church gave them a year. They said, we love you, we care for you, we've tried to talk with you, we've tried to engage with you, we want to counsel with you, but you have, you've married this other person. Within two weeks, the church voted that person out. You know what that person did? They took that letter and they say, how dare you, and it was a deep southern accent, for what it's worth, how dare you tell me how to live my life? And if you go read the comments page of that Facebook post that went viral from the south that the church faithfully under God's command sent out, you would think that church was the devil. Friends, God will often use sinners to even cleanse out other sinners. But the purpose is this that God is faithful to his call. And I want you to see this last bit. This man, why did he run away? Who is this man? This man is none other than probably Mark himself. You notice that he was following Christ. We don't know this for sure. It's probably Mark. But he says there, he says in verse 51, he says that the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. Somehow he did a Deion Sanders and juked him a few times and kind of got around him, but he, he got away from him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Why does, he, why does Mark record this? Probably about himself. He records it because he wants you to get the gravity of what's going on. Amy, will put up. Amy, if you on put all those four up, that'd be great for sake of uh, continuation here. But why did he do this? He probably did this for four reasons. Mark is telling us that there was a lot of tension and fear and anger in the air. He wanted to remind you of that, that following Christ, you're going to face these things. And you're going to face these things so much that you need to be reminded that you don't lunge at someone with a sword and cut off their ear. You don't, you don't get angry and fearful when a mob comes at you. You don't do what I did, Mark is saying in some sense. You don't run away. You stay put. Oh, how I wished I would have stayed put is almost what Mark is telling us. Second thing that Mark, is, I think, is trying to tell us is that Jesus, Jesus is poised, innocent, and in charge. That day after day, he'd been teaching in the temple And and this very composed man, in the face of this heart-thumping tension, stood his ground, and we disciples should do the same. Don't be like me, Mark says. Don't run away. Stay put. Stay the course. The third aim is that it seems to be suggesting what Mark puts us in for is that everyone was forsaking Jesus, and we knew this would happen. But the point is to fulfill the Scriptures. God is not fumbling the ball here at all. Jesus is not out of control. Everything's moving according to plan, and Mark once again wants to put that line in the sand. Jesus is greater than anything else and everybody else. But he also wanted to remind you that standing up for Jesus, they were scared. They were terrified and that they ran away. And Christian, that's going to be your life light too. Lot too sometimes. You're going to be scared. You're going to be angry, you're going to get mad, and you're going to do all these things. And we don't need to resort to speculations about what may happen to us in the future, but there may come a day where you're called to account for your faith. And yet there's grace if you deny that faith. Amen? We're going to get in Peter's denial in the next couple weeks. If there wasn't grace for Peter, there's not grace for us, friends. We deny Christ more than we ever know, but I want you to remember this. Christ is in control. As we look at our church right now, and I, I've said this in many conversations, Nelson's going to beat me over the head because I've say i used this illustration like three or four times this week, probably 300 times. Our church is, has three train tracks going right now. Did you know that? Our church has a train track of engaging people who are membership, who are not currently among us for, for a variety of reasons, and engaging them to be faithful in their commitment to Jesus Christ and the local church. That's one train track. Another train track is we have a lot of changes going on behind the scenes. We have bylaws we're working on right now. We have procedures right now. We have a whole bunch of work that, that uh, you know um, a lot of people are doing. Uh, Tina, I see you up front because you're the most obvious. I'm going to forget all the other names. So there's one person on the team among others. And we have a third train track. We have this awesome, cool building that we love so dearly and God has used so much. It needs some TLC. And you know what? I don't know how each three of those tracks are all going to fall down. How, are they going to go off on a siding? Are they all going to go to the station together? How is it all going to come together? But one thing I know is no matter what may come ahead, our God is in control. No matter what is before us, our God is in control. If He can take the worst night of the world's history and use it for His glory, guys, God can take our three little trains of a church right now and the challenges and the, the, the cool stuff happening among those for His glory. Be encouraged by that. Our God is good. Next week, we look at Jesus before the council, and once again, He is in control. Christian, what are you facing today? It's nothing bigger than what Jesus faced on that time. He still got your back, by God's grace. Will you pray with me as we close today? I invite the worship team up, and if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, we don't want to use this as a tagline, but we do want to be honest with you that uh, the Bible says you've sinned, you've fallen short of the glory.